On this program, we have a great fondness for science writers, so it may perhaps come as no surprise that we plan to speak with yet another one today. Our guest, Thomas Goetz, is an award-winning science journalist. His works have been selected for the Best American Science Writing and the Best Technology Writing Anthologies. He is a former executive editor at Wired, the entrepreneur-in-residence at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and a co-founder of the health technology company Iodine. And he's written a book titled The Remedy, Robert Koch, Arthur Conan Doyle, and the Quest to Cure Tuberculosis. It's our pleasure to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Thomas Getz. Thank you for having me. It's fun to be here. Before we talk about some of these really important figures in your book, I'd like you to take us back to the state of medical knowledge before this germ theory of disease. It's kind of hard to imagine now how little doctors knew about what causes infectious diseases. It's a pretty amazing time. And, you know, even though, even though you kind of, um, you know, know in the back of your head that, that sometime in the 19th century they figured out this thing called germs, it was, it was really fascinating to actually take a step into that world and, and really try, try to reconstitute what, what day-to-day life was like. In a world pre-germs, first of all, they didn't, most people at that time, in the, in the 19th century, most people actually died of infectious disease. So the average lifespan was 36 in, in Europe and uh, the United States. Yeah. So a lot of that was, was child mortality, which brought down the average, but fully healthy um, or seemingly healthy adults uh, would would come down with disease, oftentimes tuberculosis, and and die, and and there was really nothing that medicine could do to, for them. There was no conception of uh, or evidence of of what caused these diseases: typhoid, tuberculosis, cholera. Uh, it was it was really a mystery, and and even the the notion of them being contagious, you know, something that could spread from one person to another, which seems so evident to us. It just was incredibly controversial and, and considered, in some sense, absurd. Um, it just seemed much more sim- simple to think about um, these things being hereditary or going through the air um, as some kind of bad air thing, the, the notion of miasma. So the real shift that, that the book talks about is, is this world from when medicine was, was at best palliative, you know, could just make you feel better as you kind of suffered your way through, through illness, oftentimes to death and shifted then to one where actually the cause of disease was well known and, and we were starting to get some, some tools to combat it, first with vaccines, then through hygiene, and ultimately um, through uh, improvements in surgery as well. So it was, it's really an amazing time in history when, when all of the things that we think about as modern medicine came to be. Well, Louis Pasteur is, is world famous, and most people have probably heard of jo- Joseph Lister. But although Robert Koch's contributions to science are, are surely the equal of theirs in most respects, he is not nearly so well known. Can you tell us a bit about how he went from being this country doctor in Germany to a man who helped convince the world about the importance of germs? That's a great question because, you know, Pasteur, we know of from pasteurization and, and Lister, um, much to his chagrin, I'm sure, <laughs> is, is known to us by Listerine. But, but Koch has, has no such claim to, to popular, um, popular renown. Um, but in, in many ways, he was... He was on a par with those two um, great great scientists, and and in some senses surpassed them. So Koch was a, at the beginning of his career, he was just a, a, an anonymous German doctor, a physician, um, but he was he was incredibly rigorous, like like kind of playing to, to the German stereotype. He was methodical, careful, um, and and decided that his opportunity for making a mark in the world was to look under his microscope and to start to try to figure out what what these agents of disease were. 
And so he created a process that we know today as Koch's postulates. So it's not nearly as famous as, as Listerine, but it is, it is something. So Koch's postulates are simply this, this series of proofs that establish true causality from a, a pathogen to a disease. And before Koch, that pathway hadn't been worked out so meticulously and so clearly. And, and once Koch did that, first with the disease um, known as anthrax, and, and later with, with tuberculosis in 1882, when he presented his evidence really meticulously, really clearly, beyond a pale of a doubt, this was really the moment when, when what was then a radical notion of germs became increasingly mainstream and accepted by, by scientists. And that's, in fact, when, when things like hygiene, when, when sanitation, when hand-washing, all of those things started to come into vogue um, and, and the, the true shift away from infectious disease started to happen in our society. Your book was quite a reminder for me. Anyone who's taken a course in bacteriology has, has heard of Coke, but when I read your book, it really, it really struck me how much of what, what students do today, swabbing Petri dishes full of agar, things like that, and you know, Bunsen burners and wire loops, really goes right back to Coke's insight, insights and, and his, his inventiveness. Yeah, all the, way, all the way to the white lab mouse, if you believe the myth. <laughs> so, so the story goes that his, um, he, had a, he had a daughter, and his, uh, uh, a friend gave his daughter some, some pet mice. Um, they happened to be white mice. And Koch, who was doing lots of experiments on bacteria, needed animals to test on. And, and he and his wife would, would trap field mice um, behind, their, behind their barn um, until one day he, he had the idea just to, just to breed the, his daughter's white mice and that, the story goes, became, became the white lab mouse that we, we now know of as kind of the classic um, experimental animal today. Yeah. So, so, yeah, the Petri dish, all of these things really came out of, out of Koch's work. And, and it's, a, it's, it's a fascinating story, and I think the great irony is that he, was, he, he helped usher in this great um, world of, of careful and diligent science and then, and then ultimately ended up abandoning those principles himself um, in, in quest of greater glory. Well, your book is, is a book about science, but it also has, in the midst of it, a bit of a soap opera. There was a rather highly unfortunate rivalry rooted in 19th century politics between Germany and France between these two towering figures of this new science, Pasteur and Koch. Can you talk a little bit about that? I, I love that you call it a soap opera because it, it really <laughs> does seem as close as science uh, ever gets to, to soap opera. So, so Pasteur was, was um, about, uh, I believe, about 20 years older, 20, 30 years older than than um, Koch, so a full generation of, ahead. Um, and though Pasteur, they, they both kind of live up to the, the um, archetypes of their, of their national heritage. So Pasteur was the, the classic flamboyant showman, um, you know, the, 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 French, the Frenchman who, who um, had his claim to fame in many ways for, by saving the, the French wine industry, by, by detecting a way that the yeast was spoiling because of, because of um, uh, infection from microbes. Yeah. So, so that was, that was kind of Pasteur's um, origins, and, and as I've said, Koch was this, this kind of classic German. So, so when they started to um, find themselves competing over various, uh, basically, turf in, in the world of microbes, um, first over anthrax and then over, over some other processes, and, and um, tuberculosis was among the things that they kind of, um, and cholera, they, they butted heads on, they kind of just got into it and started to let these incredibly petty, um, but very public accusations fly um, back and forth, just just accusing them of of all sorts of malfeasance, 
and it didn't help that neither really spoke the other's language quite <laughs> quite perfectly. So so there were some mistranslations along the way, and ultimately it, it ended up doing them both a, a disservice. But I think I think the um, the public squabble uh, was was something that privately you know really pushed them both into this this great rivalry that. Um, uh, caused their their teams. You know, Coke had this team in Berlin, and Pasteur had the team in in Paris. And and for about a decade or fifteen years, there was just discovery after discovery coming out of both labs, where all the major diseases of the day cholera, typhoid, typhus, diphtheria um, they were all identified as as pathogenic. And then Pasteur got got the one up on on Coke by actually identifying a, a vaccine for rabies, and that that sent Koch on a great hunt for his own cure uh, for a disease, and, and that ended up ultimately being, being a, a siren call for him um, and wanting to infamy instead of uh, fame. Well, it, was, it surely was an exciting time in science, what was going on in microbiology, and about this point in the middle of your book, as you explain all this, you introduce a new country doctor, this time a, a man working in England. Uh, people think of Arthur Conan Doyle as a writer, but he really did start off to be a doctor in, in, in the time when he had a a ringside seat for all these developments. It was a great kind of kind of happenstance that, that they, they these stories come together. It, it turned out that, that Conan Doyle was was studying at, at the greatest medical school in Europe in at the University of Edinburgh and was there when, when um, Lister, Joseph Lister was, was there and teaching as well. I couldn't I couldn't pin down whether he actually took a course from Lister, but but he was clearly influenced by this this new age of medicine and of the germ theory. Um, he, he talked about his years of, at, at Edinburgh as, as one where there was the old school, they were naysayers of, of the germ theory, and the, the new school that believed in the germ theory believed that, that it could actually be a, a uh, way to actually improve people's lives, save people's lives. And, and Conan Doyle was very much in the, in the camp of the germ theory believers. So he was a great admirer of, of Koch, and he wrote popular essays uh, uh, to, to the public at large trying to explain why these developments in bacteriology and microbiology were so important um, to the world at large. Uh, it was really, in, in many ways, there was a symbiosis between Koch's work and, and Conan Doyle's work because what Koch discovered under his microscope, and, and even though he could convince scientists of it, the scientist community, there was this much greater light landscape on which the germ theory really needed to resonate in order to in order to make its ultimate contribution. It needed to convince the world to wash their hands, basically. It needed yeah. to convince the world to stop spitting. Um, needed to convince the world that, that germs were something they could actually um, prevent if they, if they behaved differently. And that's a very high bar. And, and ultimately, it took Conan Doyle and his writing and this crafty scientific detective that he was cooking up called Sherlock Holmes to really make that case to the world at large. We're speaking with author Thomas Getz about his book, The Remedy, Robert Koch, Arthur Conan Doyle, and the Quest to Cure Tuberculosis. One thing that really grabbed me about your book, that as a physician myself, I look back at this area you're describing, and this was, it was not a shining moment for the doctors of the world when Koch and Lister and Pasteur are coming up with these things, and they're not being embraced by the medical community. Yeah. And, and you cite a phrase which is fascinating to me, this uh, diffusion of innovation, you called it, and cite a study at the University of Missouri of 2000 showing it takes an average of 17 years between the time research establishes the best practice and when patients would be routinely treated accordingly. I wonder, I wonder if things have gotten better since then. That research was done in 2000, so, so things have not necessarily gotten much better. And, and I think the, the thing that I was trying to draw of, out of that fact was, 
was that was true in in Coke and Pasteur's time, and it seems to be true in our time, is that, you know, it's one thing to discover something under the microscope or to prove it in an experiment, but it's quite another thing to prove it to the world at large um, or even to the, your community of peers. And by and large, that takes about a generation. It, it, it took about a generation for this, for this shift for the germ theory to, to come into um, universal uh, acceptance. And similarly, the problem that contemporary physicians face is, is they are deluged with published research every day, right? There are, there are thousands yeah. of new insights being published every day. And, and there just needs to be a filtering process by which, by which the, the ones that actually matter to clinical practice kind of filter their way to the top. And I, I think that's, that is a, a, a slow process that, that many people are working on, but, but ultimately it, it requires this kind of changing of the guard of people to, to let down their, in some sense, their prejudices and adapt uh, to new thinking. And, and ultimately that's a human process, and ultimately that takes time. Yeah, well, I guess we are better off than in this 1800s. You mentioned the case we all have heard of that uh, James Lind, British naval surgeon, shows that uh, the fruit prevents yeah. scurvy. But it take, I didn't realize it took 50 years to get that implemented. It was the same thing with germs. The great scientist Semmelweis uh, in Austria um, had, uh, had kind of what he thought was, was proof that germs caused disease. And he, he was investigating um, uh, the transfer of germs among pregnant women. If you, if you remember this great story of, yes. of it's a horrid, horrible story, but it's where, um, it's where doctors were going from autopsies directly to birthing rooms and not washing their hands in between yeah. um, and going from corpses to, to pregnant women. He ultimately went insane trying to get people to believe his, his conclusions. Kind of shocking about the era we're discussing is that, uh, that that back then they didn't know how to do research as we do today. They didn't really have it in mind how to do it, and, and a lot of things were done then that just just would never be done today. We hope. It was that was that was one of the most staggering things uh, that came up when I was researching the book was was how in many ways this was the invention of the experimental method that we that we take for granted today. The, the randomized clinical trial, you know, we depend on for for uh, research into drugs. We depend on it for for research into um, what works in terms of interventions. But back then, they were absolutely winging it. So, so when Koch had what he thought was his remedy, they tried, they started experiments on it, but they were trying it on, on six-month-old babies. They were trying it on um, uh, 60-year-old women who were about to die. They were trying it at 40 milligrams. They were trying it at 100 milligrams. They were trying it at 10 milligrams. It was complete chaos. In fact, some of the, some of the observers of these experiments considered it the most, the most horrific experiment that had ever been done in, in human history, but there were no rules. There were, there were no such thing as institutional review boards or, or um, bioethics or, or any of these things that we take for granted now. And in many ways, this kind of craziness of the, of the um, experiments around tuberculin were what finally compelled um, science to, to start putting down some rules in black and white for, for how to run experiments on humans. And, and uh, it was, we've come a long way from those days. Well, Arthur Conan Doyle starts dabbling in writing, and he's got, he's even, I guess, he's got his second uh, Sherlock Holmes novel by, by 1890, but he's not a tremendous success. And, and you describe how, what sounds like on a whim, he decides to go over to Germany check, to check out this claim by, by Robert Koch that he now has a cure in hand for tuberculosis. His publisher agrees to pay for the profile of Koch, and, uh, and, Conan Doyle becomes sort of a Sherlock Holmes going over to look into it. It was actually quite amazing to me that I, I hadn't realized, in fact, that, that Conan Doyle actually wrote two full novels of Sherlock Holmes 
um, adventures that that the public reacted to with a shrug. Uh, there was just not that kind of universal acclaim, in a sense. It, it was, in some ways, like the germ theory itself. They, people, people just quite weren't ready to, to buy in yet. So, um, so after those first stories, and, and, and Conan Doyle was writing all sorts of other stories as well, um, novels and, and short stories, and, and he was trying to do whatever he could to make his mark as a writer. Um, and one day he read in the British Medical Journal that Koch had found this cure for tuberculosis, um, this remedy, it was called, and that he was going to do a demonstration in Berlin. And so, completely impetuously, Conan Doyle drops everything, uh, dashes across the English Channel, jumps on a train, and is on his way to Berlin to witness the demonstration, what he hopes, what he hopes will be a, a front-row seat at the demonstration. And then there's this, uh, you know, you called it a soap opera. I, I, I <laughs> would call it an adventure where, where he's trying to, you know, talk his way into the, into the chamber so he can um, witness the demonstration. And, and ultimately, this, this kind of detective work and, and skullduggery that, that Conan Doyle has to do, where he, he actually talks himself into the, the actual hospital where they're, um, they're doing the experiment remedy, the, the tuberculin material that, that was supposedly a cure for tuberculosis, Conan Doyle manages to kind of beguile his way in and, and doing some sleuth work, publishes what would be the first public assessment of Koch's remedy. And we can give it away if you want to give it away. I, I, try, to, I try to tease this a little bit, but the drama is still there. It, it becomes, in many ways, the, the moment where Conan Doyle decides once and for all to give up, give up medicine and dedicate himself to his writing, and it becomes quite another story for Koch. Well, I, I would say that your book describes how his sleuthing was, was certainly worthy of the work of Sherlock Holmes, as he more or less says, this is what I think is going on, and it sounds like he hit a home run. Yeah, and again, it was it was for for Conan Doyle. It was it was a a quite um, a difficult I think ordeal to write this this sober assessment of Coke's remedy um, because uh, you know he was a great admirer and Coke was a was a hero of Conan Doyle's and and would be in fact um, for for many of the decades to come it, it, in his in his later years Conan Doyle would still um, give addresses at medical schools where he would pay tribute to to Coke's great research. But in this moment, in, in 1890 in Berlin, it was quite another story where he, where he felt that there was, there was a, a universal cry of, of a cure at hand, and it just was not evident in the, in the stuff that, that Conan Doyle was seeing in that hospital. Yeah, I was, a little, I was a little unclear about the fact that Conan Doyle correctly assesses this with his journalism, and then uh, after that, Sherlock Holmes is, is suddenly becomes, becomes a hit, and then there's obviously some, some link in that. There were a couple of things going on. One was one was that that Conan Doyle he, he gave up his practice on on literally on the train ride back from Berlin. Hmm. He decides to give up his practice um, in in the small town of South Sea, and to move to London, and to try to really make a go of writing full time. He was he was still going to practice medicine. Ultimately, he would actually see no more patients um, ever in London. Um, but but he did turn himself to these these uh, to the stories, and he had this idea. What is what is great? Great insight was that English magazines were full of serialized fiction. So if you think about all the Dickens stories and all those all those great novels of, yeah. of the 19th century, they were serialized, chapter by chapter. The story would unfold. What Conan Doyle realized was that nobody had ever tried a a kind of serial where every story was specific unto itself. The characters were recurring, but the stories themselves would change from issue to issue. And this captivated the public. This combined with the kind of unique characteristics of Sherlock Holmes, this scientific detective 
who was who was driven by his microscope as much as his magnifying glass, who was who was always investigating and looking for for clues based in in science and and evidence instead of just these kind of miracles um, of of uh, coincidence. That was the traditional detective stories at the time relied tremendously on coincidence. In a Sherlock Holmes story, it was always science. So those changes that Conan Doyle did to the to the detective story were essential, I think, to finally striking a, a, a nerve with the public at large. Well, uh, in the wake of this, uh, Conan Doyle's reporting and, and the fact that it wasn't really a cure, uh, Coke's reputation takes, takes quite a big hit. And you, you concluded that uh, in, your, in the book that he really got blinded by his own ambition, perhaps, and, uh, and that Sherlock Holmes indeed had a maxim summarizing it, that it's, it's a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Insensibly, one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. Such a wonderful quote um, from, from Holmes, because I think that essentially is, was the very premise of Koch's methodology, right? That you go through the evidence, you work your way through step by step, never mm-hmm. leaping to a conclusion. And, and this is one of the things that I try to explore in the book. Why did Koch decide in, in 1890 to abandon his principles, to abandon his, his you know, lifelong uh, faith in the scientific process? Why did he leap to conclusions? And I think there were a few going, things going on. One, one was that, you know, ambition got the best of him. He, he, he wanted to come up with that remedy. He wanted to compete on the grandest stage possible with Pasteur and to, to not just discover disease, but, but in fact to cure it. Um, he also had, this is, gets back into the soap opera, he had a new 17-year-old girlfriend, and he was a, a middle-aged man in his 40s, uh-huh. and he, there was some thought that he wanted to impress her. Um, there was also some thought that he, he saw some financial remuneration in it. But ultimately, I think, I think what Koch failed to realize, and this is, this is kind of one of those great ironies that, that's in this story that, that I, was, I was just privileged to be able to tell, the, the irony is that, that Koch didn't need a remedy in a bottle. The, the idea of germs was the true cure. The idea of germs was the true shift that society needed to actually start to make headway against infectious disease. And you see this in the statistics. 1880, tuberculosis rates um, worldwide were, were, were incredibly high and, and had been for most of that century. 1890, this is when, when Koch's uh, discoveries started to become um, uh, recognized and, and widespread, the curve started to drop. And in fact, by the time that the actual chemical cure for tuberculosis came along in 1950s with antibiotics, tuberculosis rates by that time were a mere fraction, just a, just a trickle of what they had been um, in the 1880s when Koch was doing his work. The idea of germs was the cure in the end. Well, we should note as an epilogue to the, to the Koch story that uh, although the scientific community kind of got irked at his errors and hubris, uh, it didn't turn out too bad for him in the end. They, although they didn't give him a Nobel Prize for the first few times, eventually they sat back and said, well, his contributions are such, though, we, we do have to give him one. Yes, he did. But it was a close call. I mean, <laughs> you know, one of the, one of the fun things to, to trace out was how the first Nobels were just given around the, the beginning of the, of the 1900s, and, and he had to watch two of his colleagues get Nobels before he, um, he got one himself, two of the people who used to be his assistants in his lab. And he even had the, the humiliation of having um, Science Magazine publish in 1904 that he was certain to get the Nobel Prize that year, only to see it go to no, somebody else. And, and it wasn't until 1905 that he finally got the prize. So, so it, was a, it was an excruciating process for him, I'm sure. 
Well, I want to note in closing that you are the founder of a health technology company, Iodine, and I was wondering how this company fits into the story that you told in the book. It's very much a 21st century version of, of the same idea. It's What we're trying to do at Iodine is to take insights, take, take the uh, evidence that exists in clinical trials and bring it to people so they can understand it and act on it. So, so we are looking at um, the clinical research from uh, pharmaceutical trials, all the stuff that the FDA has uh, gone through in order to approve drugs, and uh, all, the, all the information that, that you know, many individuals really want to get their hands on but, but find it very difficult to understand um, or to even, even to access. And, and so what we're trying to do is provide information in, in ways that are clear, uh, actionable, and, and in fact personalized to give people clear guidance on what drugs might work for them better than others and, and what side effects um, might be in store and, and other things such as that. So like Coke's laboratory discovery was not enough. It needed to somehow resonate on the, on the um, broad social stage. In, in our own humble way, we're, we're trying to find those, those insights that are locked up in clinical research and, and repackage them, um, visualize them, use, use dynamic data science um, to create digital tools that actually make them meaningful and actionable for people. So hopefully the British Navy in the 21st century wouldn't take 50 years to start using uh, limes. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> the book is The Remedy, Robert Koch, Arthur Conan Doyle, and the Quest to Cure Tuberculosis. Uh, it's been a great pleasure to speak with you. My goodness, thank you so much for the time. It was such a, such a fun talk. I, I really appreciate it. Bacteria. Bacteria. Look, there's bacteria. 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 You might not see them, but they're there. Bacteria. Bacteria. Everything you touch. Bacteria. Bacteria. That's right. Salmonella bacteria. But we have to watch out for bacteria that can spoil our chicken. Bacteria practically everywhere. Everywhere you look. In the kitchen. Inside the cooler. In the dining area. In the restrooms.